Hi there everyone, I'm Mar Bell, Editor-in-Chief of Director's Notes and welcome back to the podcast. Now, as many of you who are attempting to build careers within the creative fields are all too aware, the path to success is far from a straight line. Initial victories can and often do give way to lengthy fallow periods, which will leave you questioning the sanity of staying the creative course. Bringing these bittersweet realities home over the course of 73 at times heartbreaking minutes. Matt Hopkins and Ben Lancaster's feature documentary, A Divorce Before Marriage, follows five-piece rock band I Like Trains, who, despite a dedicated following of fans and early record deal success, have now found themselves most definitely stuck in the middle, without the backing of a label and working day jobs as they attempt to finally break through in a stagnant music industry. Matt and Ben join us on the podcast today to discuss how they followed the band members over the course of three years in order to capture this first-hand view of the struggle to succeed. Welcome to the Director's Notes podcast, Matt and Ben. Hello. Hello. Can I get you, I think you kind of did it there, but just to orientate our listeners, can I get you to do a shout out as there's two of you there? So um, first off, Matt. Hi, this is Matt. And Ben. Hello, this is Ben. Cool. So nice two distinctive voices there. I like to start off our interviews by finding out a bit more about you guys as filmmakers and where you came from with the question of um, what is it that brought you to filmmaking and directing? Well, Matt and I, we actually met at film school in Bournemouth. So that was uh, about 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago now. Um, I, I guess our individual sort of journeys to get us to Bournemouth were different, obviously. But then uh, when, when we met, um, you know, we headed off. We'd worked on some projects together whilst at Bournemouth. But it wasn't until we left that um, we joined forces sort of properly. And um, that eventually uh, became the production company that we subsequently set up together. But it was, yeah, it was at Bournemouth that we met and that sort of relationship sort of sort of started. How did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to set up the Progress Film Company together as opposed to working ad hoc on projects? You know, having, having that kind of organisation behind us allowed us to make the films we wanted to make. You know, having other people working with you and being able to support each other allowed us to, you know, not only do commercial work, but spend time actually doing short films, which eventually developed into, you know, something of a scale of a divorce before marriage. Mm -hmm. So that was the real kind of appeal to us, really. It really evolved out of um, being freelance. And, you know, we just wanted to get a bit of structure together, really. At the beginning, Matt and I were essentially just two freelancers working on individual projects, sometimes together. But, um, at the time, it was just the two of us, and like I said, we were, we were essentially freelancers, but we just gave ourselves a a name, an umbrella to put all the, all the work and all our clients that the two of us had individually uh, under one roof. Mm-hmm. And from there, it grew into what it is today, and it, it was a very sort of natural, organic sort of process of you know bringing in our first staff member, working with freelancers where we needed to, and yeah, it just sort of grew from there. How would you um, break down, I suppose, um, each of your specialities or um, areas of focus that you um, both bring back to um, this partnership? Um, there's a lot of kind of overlap. I- I'd say, I mean, not, not to speak for Ben, but I've always been really interested in kind of story-led documentary filmmaking. I come from a travel background as well. In some of my commercial work, I've got a lot of travel work on my reel, but, it, you know, it's really at home. Um, I'm really at home with documentary storytelling, essentially. Uh, I think with, uh, as uh, most sort of director partnerships, the best ones 
you know, complement each other in terms of the individual people involved in those partnerships. And yeah, as Matt said, he sort of uh, came out of uni and did a lot of travel work and, and sort of documentary based stuff. And I sort of did a lot of music videos. And at the beginning of that, I actually specialised more in editing and Matt was more sort of camera. When we started Progress, we started working as freelancers. We had to sort of do everything. So we, we moved, each of us moved into, uh, you know, we developed our camera skills, developed our editing skills. And when we started the film, when we started the feature, it was very much just, uh, and we'll come to talk about that, but it was very much one of us on camera, one of us on sound and switching. I think a lot of people now, you have to be able to do sort of everything. And that's very much what we did early on in our careers. And what we continue to do when we started making the film. So yeah, as you um, alluded to there, we're um, together today to talk about your um, feature film, A Divorce Before Marriage, which is, I would say, a music documentary, but it's not not the way that you would traditionally conceive of a band music documentary. Could you explain a little bit more about the film? So the film's about a band uh, from Leeds called I Like Trains. And when we first met them they were a signed band who you know that they had a record deal and they were releasing albums and we, we met them just at the cusp where the music industry changed everyone started downloading music their record deal essentially evaporated into nowhere and suddenly they were a band with i wouldn't say a lack of direction but uh without a home and you know just trying to work out how they could keep making music for their fan base, which still very much existed without a record label. So we we just stepped into their world and um, without trying to make it about anything in particular, we just wanted to kind of engage with how they continue to do things and um, survive as a band. And uh, in that process, we were, we were very keen to do something over a longer period rather than make it about that. Oh no, they've lost a record deal. So hopefully what you see is a story told at a very kind of different pace to conventional music documentaries. Yeah, because you began documenting the recording of um, their third album, The Shallows. So at that point, did you know that you were going to stick with them for the next three years? Or did you think that that was going to be the long form project? Um, when we made that album trailer, we went to Wales and um, went into the studio with them for the first time. And yeah, as you say, that was when they were starting to record The Shallows. Our brief to go in there was to very much like produce the album trailer, which we made. But it was during those conversations with them, as Matt said, we, we got into their lives a little bit and went behind the scenes a bit more and sort of talked about um, the fact that they had day jobs, which was, you know, surprising to us initially. There was a lot of facets of those early conversations that we found interesting enough to keep talking about. So we decided to sort of go back to Leeds with them, continue the conversation. But yeah, at the time, the, the desire for us to tell something, because we'd, we'd made so many short documentaries up to that point. The desire to make something longer was certainly there. So it was around that time that we, uh, I remember at the time when the band were talking to us, that, you know, they were saying, you know, I hope this conversation keeps going. And so the band were interested in us uh, following them for a longer period. And we were certainly interested in doing that as well. Uh, but it was during that period in Wales that the germ of the film sort of began. Was there ever any reticence from any of the band members in you guys following them from the angle of a band who haven't quite made it? They're kind of in this strange middle ground because... The music industry is very much about perception, especially with bands, you know, this idea of greatness that you look up at these bands up on, on a stage under the lights. So were they at all concerned about making themselves vulnerable? Not as much as I think you'd expect. I mean, they're very modest guys and they, they always said they didn't want the film to be a vanity project. So us asking those quite, you know, deep and personal questions about 
you know, their place in the record industry and maybe pinning them as a, a band in the middle ground. You know, they were very receptive to those questions. You know, there was never there was never a stamp until we really started editing the film. There was never a stamp, though, that, you know, this is what the film's about. And our hope was always that The Shallows would, you know, almost be a comeback album and, you know, something would develop that way. But it's just the way over that time the, the story materialised, really, that that came to light. And um, they were, yeah, surprisingly open to it, I think. they were. I think they were keen to show people the struggles of a band in their position and what it was really like to to record albums yourself. And my, mine and Matt's pitch to them initially, just after that Wales recording session, we told them we wanted to explore these ideas of, you know, those bands in that sort of middle ground. And that, that was an idea that they, they got behind early on. When it came to talking to the band members, because some of it, well, quite a lot of the film feels very confessional. And there's a part, I don't know, I suppose, um, three quarters of the way through, where it feels like they're all individually questioning their commitment to the band and the role it plays in their life. And the way that those um, interviews come across, it feels like these are conversations that they haven't had with each other, that they're having with you. Was that the case, that they weren't privy to what each other had said to you in the interview and can almost see them working through their feelings of their commitment to the band versus, you know, building lives for themselves as well that are away from the band? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, just through the nature of there being five of them, because at the time, you know, Matt and I were coming up from Brighton and London, and we'd often interview two or three of them in one day, you know, and we'd go from uh, one of their houses to the next person's house. And, you know, each of them would always say, oh, how was it with Guy? How was it with Alistair? You know, what did they say? You know, they'd be interested in that as, as you would be. And just us interviewing them separately obviously allowed us to sort of uh, get more sort of intimate and personal answers from them that they wouldn't necessarily have shared with each other. Uh, not not because they were deep secrets or anything, it's just the nature of obviously interviewing someone one-on-one, you get into things that you wouldn't, you know, when you're at band practice, etc. You know, those are just things that as documentary storytellers we were interested in exploring. There were certainly a lot of, uh, yeah, times when they were obviously interested in what each other were, were saying and it wasn't until we showed them the film very late on after a few years of making it that they saw those answers that each other had given that was always the kind of driving force behind the film that was the tension to be honest you know being in a band is a huge huge commitment and you basically need to all have the same level of investment in that otherwise things are going to break down and that was always the kind of tension in the story, trying to communicate that, I guess. And that, that was definitely a thing. You know, these guys, they had big decisions to make about careers and lives. and But everybody obviously wanted the band to succeed. And as Ian says in the film, you know, you don't want to be the one. Um, I can't remember the quote. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's that one that first sort of says, you know, that questions it, basically, you know. And I guess what the film does is it, it shows that period when they were all sort of just plodding along and they weren't sure what was next. And that's the part you're talking about where, you know, we, we're, we're with each of them individually and they're all getting on with their own lives. And there is that sort of hanging in the balance moment of, are we going to continue this? Are we going to make another record? And that's that's what we explored in that, you know, in that second act. Yeah. Well, there's always this idea of, is it that you need to go all in and be committed to actually make it as a band or I suppose as any creative or are you just being delusional and you're not going to make it and you're hurting your future prospects and your future life and I think that the film does a fantastic job of balancing the qualms over that question because you know you hear things of you know bands like Pulp who were around for absolutely ever 
before they made it. So there's that idea of, well, if we just stick it out long enough, then, you know, our time's going to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we talked about that a lot during the making of the film. As Matt said, we kind of thought The Shallows, you know, we heard the album early on and we thought that this could be the record that finally breaks them properly into the mainstream, you know, because because they are very much that band right in the middle. That You know, some people have heard of them, some haven't. They've got a very, very loyal and substantial fan base, you know, around the world, really. So they were always that band, yeah, absolutely bang in the middle. And we thought this record could be the one that sort of takes them you know, yeah, like you say, Pulp or bands like The National, who I trains, you know, really love and another band that sort of, you know, it was 10 years exactly before they sort of, you know, really made it. And that that was the period we were covering with the band. So there was there was always that idea, I think, uh, from the band and from Matt and I that, you know, this could happen for them. Yeah. But in the end, for us, uh, a much more interesting film came out of the fact that the album didn't take off, you know? Yeah. What were the trigger points that would lead to you going, all right, now's the time for us to do another interview or now's the time for us to get more footage with the band? Because obviously over that three-year period, you weren't with them you know, constantly. We just, you know, we very strictly checked in, I think every three or four months, gradually, just to make sure, you know, we we're always telling a story. But, you know, during it, we were editing as well. And, you know, we knew that there were events you know, there'd be mini tours or there'd just be general events that we'd want to kind of check in on, really. But there was nothing, I'm trying to think back, it feels like such a long time ago now, but there was never, you know, other, other than the 10 years stuff coming around at the end, which became really their trigger to get the band back together, if you like. It was very much just us us checking in every so often. It would be very much interview-based, that those check-ins. So the idea would, you know, a few months have passed and we'd think, we haven't spoken to them in a while, let's get up to Leeds, let's let's see what's happening and, and we'd construct scenes or, or you know say let's go out here and let's do this and, and get those visual sequences and we'd go up and shoot that and then go back to um, their place and do an interview with them and we'd do that with each of them individually and then we'd get back into the edit as Matt said we'd review it all and then we'd think we need a scene here we need a scene there go back and capture that and that was the process what we did over over those three years and it wasn't until the end where the film properly came together, where we knew exactly what holes we needed to fill um, in terms of our visual sequences. It was very much a, every so often we'd go up there and shoot with them. It certainly wasn't, um, you know, it's a, it's a 75 minute film told over three and a half years. So there isn't like a, a lot of other, I mean, there is, but it's, it's a surprising lack of footage over that period. You know, we shot probably for, was it 80 days in total? Mm -hmm only 80 days over three and a half years and it was a film told over a certain period of time so it, it didn't require us to speak to them even once a month you know we got a lot more from the interviews when we went up after a certain period of time had passed and we were able to really see where the story in each of their sort of lives had taken them given the period that you were filming them there's going to be a progression in your work technically and you know narratively um just because you know you're making work over that course of time so how did you find, I suppose, the initial footage that you'd captured at the beginning of the, you know, three, three and a half years versus the later footage? You know, was there a difference in quality that you could notice, um, you know, whether that be in structure or in technique? Yeah, we laugh about this quite often because obviously, like you say, when you're uh, developing as a filmmaker, three and a half years is, is a long time, especially in the early sort of part of your career. And yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the decisions you make early on, you're forced to stick with later when you come to edit it. So yeah, absolutely. You know, and in terms of like recording sound and the real the real basics, you know, we made a lot of mistakes along the way. And the actual process of making the film was pretty backwards, just in terms of how what we learned 
during the process of making it and how we're, you know, very much like do things differently if we were to do it again. Saying that, the aesthetic that Matt and I wanted to achieve with the film was very much set early on. Our taste doesn't really change in, in that three and a half years, even though the sort of the technical approach does. We look back on the early bits and our intention was good, even if the execution wasn't. <laughs> what was your um, equipment setup? Did that stay constant throughout? We've started the film with a red one, and that was basically a huge piece of kit, which, you know, was almost too heavy to lift. But we'd lug that around. And, you know, we always used a big camera, basically, and that kind of matched this visual style, a very slow, kind of beguiling frames, really. Basically, as we made the film, we kept using red cameras, but they gradually got smaller. So we used the Epic next. We used the Red Scarlet. We started using the Amira towards the end as well. We used the Red Dragon. We used all sorts of... Um, FS7 we shot on. Yeah. FS7, I think, yeah. I, I, think was, I think we shot on seven different cameras, the, wow. whole, the whole film, which is... A change of camera every 10 minutes, which is pretty, <laughs> pretty good. But, but more, one of the good decisions we did make early on was we consciously future-proofed ourselves by shooting in 4K on the Red One because we knew that this was a story. We wouldn't finish shooting for another two, three years. We knew that early on in the process, so we consciously decided to use the camera that we wouldn't regret using later. So that was a successful early decision we made. <laughs> An element of the film that I really appreciated and enjoyed is the B-roll that you guys capture, you know, these gorgeous landscapes or, you know, we get the building work and stuff. How did you select those? Because they're not necessarily directly related to the story as such. You know, it's not like inserts here of a guitar being um, strung or anything like that. They're these kind of painterly vistas. So, yeah, what led you to select those as your B-roll? Obviously, going up to Leeds and shooting, we shot for 80 days. You know, we'd always see things along the way, these beautiful scenes, which, you know, we may, may be driving to one of their houses or just out on the kind of Yorkshire Moors or something. And we'd shoot it, you know, and we basically by the end of the film, we had this really large collection of, um, of scenes. And some of them were very similar, which were shot at different times of the year. So the example we come back to is this tree we have this uh, beautiful tree in the middle of a landscape and we shot it uh, in summer autumn and in the middle of winter when we had this deep snow we really had to show the passing of time with this film and that was actually the hardest thing to do in the edit so coming back to these landscapes time and again that really helped to kind of slowly move the story on because as you see in the film not that much actually happens and it is the time period, which is actually a huge part of the story as well. So that was that was basically the reason for, you know, including a lot of those visuals. When it came to filming in venues, especially, you know, when they go off on the tour, so you're rocking up at the venues the same time that the band is, you know, you haven't necessarily been able to scout. How did you approach that? Uh, I'm presuming the, um, the DVD that you made with the band at the left bank in Leeds kind of helped, well, at least prepare you to um, capturing in those environments. Yeah, I mean, we'd done a fair bit of live music prior to this film. You know, we'd made uh, music shows for, for TV, We've done um, music videos for bands, you know, with seven, eight cameras at a venue. But this was very different because every time we, we rocked up one of these venues, it would literally just be Matt and I, you know, so we'd, we'd have a single camera. So we never attempted, as, you, as you'll see in the tour footage, we never could attempt to pretend that we were capturing a gig from different angles. So we used that to our advantage and we just, obviously the film takes an observational documentary approach in the most part. And that was our approach even during the gigs, you know, to hold a position and to see what unfolded. At times in the edit, we were really frustrated by the lack of options we had there. 
but ultimately it still served the visual sort of approach to the film. It would have been a different film. Had we shot a lot of those shows with three cameras, there would have just been this huge temptation in the edit to dump a five-minute song in here and then another one somewhere else. And that would have made it a very different film. It would have become a concert movie, and that was not what we wanted to do. So the frustration in the edit when we didn't have all those different angles to cut to were really important for the basic storytelling of the film. But the uh, the tour section was the hardest part to get right in the edit, the pacing of that, and to keep momentum going and to keep true to the kind of film we wanted to make. What guided your hand when it came to finding the balance of the band members as they appear in the film individually? I think that was uh, something, yeah, again, in the edit, we played with a lot. And I think we got to a point where we realised we had to have key characters. Dave and Guy, really, they were the two main characters. And then Ian was, you know, he came from an outside perspective. He wasn't an original member. So he was actually able to speak uh, more in the third person as a bit of a narrator to the film, if you like. And then um, Simon and Alistair were, if you like, more background characters. And it was something we realised while editing. Having five people in a film is a lot of people's story to really to really look at. We obviously wanted everybody to have their say and be, be part of the story. But we, yeah, we definitely realised we had to give more time to Guy and Dave, who kind of really turned into the key characters. One of the major advantages of um, creating a feature doc about a band is that your score's pretty much sorted. But when it comes to selecting the songs and their position in the film, what drove that? Well, with the with the soundtrack, it wasn't a sure thing that the band, so I Like Trains uh, wrote the score for the film eventually, but that wasn't something that we necessarily thought was going to happen early on. But when they did do it, it was quite unusual because obviously, as Matt said, it wasn't a vanity project for the band. It, it was a film that we made about them. It wasn't a, a film from I Like Trains. So when it came to the score, we were in a position where we were seeing the edit and obviously they weren't because they were the subject of the documentary. So they just had to take very specific sort of notes uh, from us on themes and tones. And we gave them a lot of references and said, this is the kind of thing we want. This is the kind of thing we need for the story to really work in these certain sections. And, and they basically gave us, I think it was about an hour and 20 minutes of material, nine or 10 tracks that we then took into the edit and started um, using in various places. Up to that point, we had sort of placeholders in the film, in our edit, so we were able to just um, chop and change, and they obviously gave us three or four tracks early on that we used to start editing. And But yeah, right up to the last, I mean, even a week before we properly finished the film, we were chopping and changing with that music. It was, it was, a, it was a tough process. Yeah, I think it goes back to the question you asked earlier about, you know, were the band on board with us making this quite personal and I wouldn't say heartbreaking but raw film and I think when we got the score back I think there was definitely this mutual understanding just through that piece of work they created of what type of film this was you know the the pace of it and um, all those various elements it was just great to listen to it because yeah I think everyone was on the same page. You reached out to um, Kickstarter rather successfully at what point did you um, decide that you know you needed to you know, go out to um, the community to, you know, raise additional funds for the film. Was that always in the roadmap? It wasn't always in the roadmap, but we're definitely at a point where we didn't really have any money left. And we, we basically needed to raise some funds for that, but also, you know, start building the audience for the film. 
up until that point, we'd been filming for 18 months and we hadn't really had a huge discussion of what the film actually was and what it was about. And Kickstarter, obviously raising the funds was a huge, huge part of it, but it also just gave us a lot of structure to making the film and getting the film finished. Because, you know, as independent filmmakers, you, you literally have nobody breathing down your neck, you know, asking when this is going to be done. And, you know, Kickstarter was fantastic for that, really. I, I don't think I've seen a campaign where um, somebody's offered um, their car. <laughs> really yeah, we got quite creative with the uh, with the rewards. But the other thing about Kickstarter is it, it just builds that, as Matt said, it gave us structure and it gave us a sort of people asking for the film, which was great for us, giving us little individual deadlines to, to work to. But it just raises the profile in a way that, you know, that's, that's, that's the best thing about it. The money is amazing. It was necessary, but it's all about the awareness that you raise around your project. And that's the biggest thing we got from our Kickstarter campaign. We just had such a, an amazing reaction to the themes of the film. And just going back to your question, I think at the time we've been filming for 18 months and we had a trailer. The only trailer that's online is the trailer we actually had when we launched our Kickstarter. That's the trailer we had. So we had a good trailer that really sold the themes of the film and, and we knew the band had a fan base. So it just made sense to... Uh, for all those reasons, and to start raising the profile and get people talking about the film, which just made a lot of sense to go down the Kickstarter route. I need to ask you about the title, A Divorce Before Marriage. You know, it's quite enigmatic and not immediately obvious, you know, what the subject of the film would be. How did you um, arrive at that title? Uh, From the very first conversation about the film, that was the title. And it's actually um, one of their tracks. I think it's their second album, Divorce Before Marriage. We just thought it was a very evocative title. And it's uncanny how well it matched the film's themes throughout the the process. And, you know, even visually having this wedding at the end, this marriage, you know, having seen the band have some sort of breakdown of sorts is, you know, it just it just always stuck so well. So yeah, we just we just kept with it. When we're asked that question, it's always really frustrating because it, we give that really boring music documentary cliched answer, which is it's one of their tracks. But the truth is, as Matt said, it's just always worked so perfectly for the kind of film we wanted to make. Yeah, you um, premiered the film in um, June of last year, twenty sixteen, at the um, Picture House um, Central. How did that come about? How did you um, choose that as the home for the world premiere? That was part of uh, Open City Doc Fest, and we'd actually screen films there for the previous two years we'd won awards for shorts there and there were always a festival which supported us and actually you know from the moment we did kickstarter they supported the kickstarter and they were always really keen on premiering the film and uh last year the Docfest actually took quite a big leap it went into bigger cinemas than it had before you know doing a lot of stuff at the newly uh, refurbished pitch house central so it was just it all just came together as it seemed like the right place for us to premiere the film. We'd always promised the Kickstarter backers, you know, this exciting premiere where we all got together, we all had a drink. And, you know, it really was what we'd hoped it would be. You know, we managed to sell out Screen 2, so there was over 200 people there on the opening night. And, um, yeah, it really did all that work and all the support people had given us. It did it justice, really. What have the reactions been to the film? You know, one from the band and... I suppose two from the fans and then in general for the people that you've spoken to who you know have no idea about um, the band at all. The band's reaction has been positive. It's, it's very hard for them to, to be objective about it, understandably. Dave, the lead singer of the band, the main focus of the film, you know, he always says he just finds it impossible to know whether it's any good or not. That's his take on it because it's about him. It's, it's impossible for them to, to really know, you know, it's an account of a period of their lives. It, it's tough for them to have any view on it other than that, really. 
But everywhere else, we've a, a great reaction in terms of it's raised questions and discussions with people in exactly the way we wanted it to thematically. People have really responded to what they responded to when we first put the Kickstarter campaign together. It was it was those themes that that have really resonated with people. We have a lot of um, peers who watch it. The best bit of feedback I get is people say, you know, they find it very difficult to watch at times as you know, this is coming from a lot of filmmakers and other musicians and creatives who lead similar lives. You know, they're striving to do great things. And at times it feels like a really tough journey and you're on your own and things just aren't happening. And as creatives, there's huge elements of that feeling of, you know, where do I lie between kind of success and failure? And that for me is the kind of best feedback we can get. It's a film that actually makes people feel something rather than, you know, 120 minutes of, of a band looking great on stage. How have you approached um, getting the film out there and sharing it wider, you know, after the, you know, the premiere and, you know, a festival run and stuff? After Open City, we had a festival run with a European premiere in Warsaw and uh, Doc House did a weekend run of it and Doc and Roll, we, we screened it in Brighton at the picture house there. And we've now got a sales agent who's shopping it around looking for potential broadcast slots. And we've obviously put together a DVD release, which we had to do probably sooner than we would have normally done it just because of our sort of Kickstarter community who were waiting for uh, physical releases. Depending on what our sales agent comes back with, we're then going to give it a proper online release where people can um, can buy it and stream it online, probably on Vimeo On Demand or some, somewhere like that. And what do you guys have planned? Um, you know, what projects are you currently working on that we might see in, in the near future? Um, we're both currently finishing uh, separate short films that we have been working on for quite some time. Um, they sort of took a back seat during um, obviously the feature and getting that finished. So we're we're currently wrapping those up and then we'll be starting to develop new feature ideas, which are in the early stages at the moment. Fantastic. Where should I send our audience to stay up to date with your work? So our company website is progressfilm.co.uk and everything's sort of housed at Progress. That's the sort of umbrella that all of this work is fed through. On there, you can find links to to the film to buy the film and all that business so um yeah it's all it's all there yeah it's all there and we've got lots of offshoots of other short films and it's yeah it's all housed there it's the best place to go really matt and ben even though you broke my heart a little with your film it's been a real pleasure talking to you today about the journey of the film so you know thank you so much for joining us on director's notes thanks for having us yeah thanks for having us Thanks for listening to this episode of the Director's Notes podcast. It's always our pleasure to have you with us. And if you did enjoy this or any episodes, then we'd really appreciate it if you could head over to wherever it is that you grab your podcasts and leave us a um, five-star rating and a review as those really help in bringing new people to the show. While you're waiting for the next episode, remember you can always join us on directorsnotes.com where we post daily interviews with directors talking about their work, such as Rob's conversation with director Paul Trillo, who discusses how he pulled off the 10-minute one-take short film at the end of the cul-de-sac, which was completely shot on a drone. You can also find us on Facebook as Director's Notes, on Twitter as WeRDN. And while you're at it, head over to our Vimeo channel, WeRDN, where we post a ton of fantastic short films, music videos, documentaries, you name it, for your viewing pleasure. Catch you next time. Director's Notes.